Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father God, we turn to you again this morning. We thank you for your unfailing love and faithfulness towards us and how you provide for us, how you are steadfast in your commitment towards us. That no matter the rigours of life, no matter what um, the day-to-day throws at us, no matter what is designed to pull us down, to drag us under, I thank you, Lord, that our feet can be firmly firmly, um, grounded upon the rock, which is your word. And as we come and open your word this morning, we pray that it would bring us stability. We pray, Lord, that it would turn our thoughts and our hearts towards you. And that, Lord, you would give us something to be able to take away, to nourish us and sustain us in the week that comes. Please anoint my my thoughts and my words. uh, And, Lord, please anoint our ears, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our study through the book of Judges. Sunday mornings when I'm teaching the book of Judges, we're in chapter 13 this morning. And uh, we're starting a new judge this morning with chapter 13. Uh, That judge is Samson, and he will span chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16. Chapter 13 uh, is to do with the circumstances surrounding his birth. And that is as far as as far as we will get this morning, 25 verses. The majority of what I want to say is wrapped up in those uh, first handful of verses. And then we will uh, go through the remainder of the chapter at the end. Um, But yes, Samson is the 13th judge. And let's start off in verse one. And again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, we should all be familiar with the language employed here. When it says the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, we've heard that we've read that phrase multiple times already in the book of Judges. And you should know that that phrase is always used to indicate that Israel has entered a new cycle of sin. Throughout the book of Judges, uh, Israel will go through seven cycles of sin and uh, There are five stages in a cycle of sin. It starts off with Israel in rest, uh, where they're living under the rest of a divine government of a judge. It's then followed by a period of rebellion where a new generation arises that rebels against God and enters into idolatry. Then that is followed with retribution. The Lord brings divine retribution by means of a foreign invader. Then that brings Israel to a place of repentance. Israel cries to the Lord for help uh, against this foreign invader through repentance. And then comes restoration. The Lord raises up a judge to deliver Israel and to govern a restored people. And uh, uh, this is when we get to chapter 13 here. We are at the seventh uh, cycle of sin. Seven out of the seven cycles. So the last cycle. Israel had enjoyed peace in the land ever since the time of Jephthah, the ninth judge. And Israel had prospered in the land uh, through the days of Ibzan, Elon and Abdon, the 10th, 11th and 12th judge. And peace and prosperity in the life of a nation, as well as the life of a person, does have a tendency to create um, a reduction in a nation and a person's diligence 
in their service to God. Peace and prosperity it causes you to live at your ease. And uh, it's easy to think, well, I'm in a place of wealth. I'm in a place of um, peace. I can take it easy. But as we take it easy, our commitment to God can weaken. And that's what happened to Israel. Their peace, their prosperity caused their commitment to God to weaken. They And so they slipped back into idolatry. And I think we can all, if we are honest with ourselves, recognise in ourselves that uh, if we take <clears throat> our finger off the pulse for a second, we all have a tendency to decline in our spiritual walk. We need to maintain a close walk with God. Moses had warned uh, Israel against this tendency in Deuteronomy 8 verse 18. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 reads, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So Moses warned Israel that power and wealth come from the Lord's hand and that they were to be tools to establish his covenant among the people. So when the Lord gives a person or a nation power and wealth, it's not so that they can live at their ease. It's so that the covenant can be established. Now for us, the covenant that God has given us to establish is the new covenant. So when God gives us wealth, when God gives us power, these are to be tools to help us to establish the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, through our own outreach, through our own sharing of the gospel. But what Israel had done is they had taken that wealth that the Lord had given them and used it to live at their ease, and in their ease, they fell back into sin and idolatry. Hence, they entered the seventh cycle of discipline. And the foreign invader that came with the seventh cycle were the Philistines. Now, today, Israel had been oppressed by the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Moabites and the Midianites. Now, the Ammonites, Moabites and Midianites, they were Semitic people. They were descended from Noah's son, Shem. The Canaanites... They were Hermitic people descended from Noah's son Ham. But the Philistines were not native to the region. They were Japhetic. They were descended from Noah's son Japheth, just as I am and I think the majority of you are as well. And the Philistines actually originated from the Aegean area. You know where the Aegean Sea is? You've got, uh, you've got Greece to the west, you've got Turkey to the east, you've got the Balkans to the north and you've got Crete to the south. That's the Aegean area there. And the Philistines arrived in Canaan by two routes. First, they went through Anatolia, which is Turkey, and then down south by the coastal path into what is now Israel. But they also travelled across sea via Crete and Cyprus, where they stopped at Crete and Cyprus for a season. And what the Philistines originally tried to do is gain access to Egypt, but they were fought back by Ramesses III. Uh, they were not allowed to go to Egypt. Hence, they settled on the coastal area of Lower Canaan. And they occupied five city-states. Gaza, which we all know today to be a, a part of the territory of the Philistine, uh, Palestinians, sorry. But they also had another, other four cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron and Gath. Gath you might have heard of and remember because that's where Goliath came from. 
So here we are, the Philistines coming from the Aegean. They settle around about the 12th century BC in five cities in Lower Canaan, just to the left of the territory of where Judah is. Uh, sorry, not to the left, to the west of where the territory of Judah is. Now, by the time um, we get to Samson, the Philistines would have been established for about 120 years. And uh, they were more technologically advanced than Israel at the time. They had superior ironworks, which meant that they were able to forge better weapons, which meant that the Philistines tended to have the upper, ha upper hand in warfare, which would explain the reason for their oppressive power at this time. Now, the Philistines had been a problem in the days of Shamgar and the days of Jephthah, but their threat didn't amount to much until now. Because here we read again in uh, verse one, um, the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That is the longest period of time Israel would be under the oppression of a foreign invader. Uh, prior to that, the, the um, Israel had been oppressed by Ammon for 18 years, but this is more than double that length of time. And what is most interesting to me about this is if we remember the cycle of sin is that once Israel was under the oppressive influence of an foreign invader, eventually they would come to a place of repentance and they would cry out to the Lord for help. Nowhere in the account of Samson do we hear that Israel cries out to the Lord for help. Nowhere do we see Israel coming to a place of repentance. It's almost as if they become resigned to a substandard uh, lifestyle under Philistine rule. They become so hardened and so cold towards the Lord that they can't even move themselves to repentance, to cry out to the Lord. And uh, really, this is a, a sad reflection uh, of, of many Christians, I believe. They get to a place where Christians get to themselves to a place where they resign themselves to a substandard spiritual life. They get used to being oppressed by the flesh. They get used to being battered and bruised by the world. And instead of fighting to get to a place of victory, instead of um, fighting to uh, live in a place of right relationship with God, Christians so often are willing to live a second standard, a second class type of Christian life where they, where they do not fight or give the same degree of effort in serving God and as a result they fail to reach their potential in Christ and they fail to bear the fruit they were born to in Jesus Christ. Now the fact that God chooses to raise up a man, uh, another deliverer, Samson, despite uh, Israel not coming out uh, and repenting, really is a sign of God's goodness and faithfulness towards his people. Here God takes the initiative. Here God chooses to move in the lives of Israel. Um, with Samson, God acts sovereignly, choosing to raise up a judge outside the cry of Israel, choosing to introduce a deliverer despite Israel's hardened heart, which is what the Lord has done for us effectively in Jesus Christ. While we are dead in our sin, hardened against the Lord. The Lord had raised up for us a judge and deliverer in Jesus Christ. 
and we may not have sought or asked for a saviour, but God in his grace and knowing our need has given us Jesus. As it says in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Samson is a picture of God's love towards Israel despite themselves. So we see here that uh, we're still in verse one, still got a little bit way to go. Verse one, um, I'm just going to reread it to you again, just to refresh your memory. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the 40 years of the Philistine oppression is a difficult chronology to map out. You see, while verse one tells us that the oppression was 40 years, if you go to Judges 15 verse 20 and Judges 16 31, both those verses tells us that Samson judged Israel for a mere 20 years. And so Samson only judged Israel for half the period of the Philistine oppression. And it wasn't it wasn't the end 20 years either, because Samson didn't deliver Israel of the Philistine oppression. It continued beyond Samson. Um, so Samson sits somewhere in those 40 years, quite where I'm not 100% sure. And if we were talking from a, a, a biblical account point of view, that, that 40 years of oppression under the Philistines starts here in Judges 13, but continues all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Those 40 years continue all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And during this time of, of 40 years of oppression, you will find that the Ark of the Covenant would be captured by the Philistines. The Philistines would come under a curse from the Ark. They would then return the Ark and it would be lodged at Kirjath Jearim. It is also during this 40 year period that the prophet Samuel would be born to Hannah. Samuel would serve the Lord under the high priestship of Eli. Also during this time, the two wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, would be killed. Eli would also die. And Samuel would serve as the last of the judges. Samuel doesn't appear in the book of Judges, but he is the last of the judges. And uh, effectively the first of the prophets as well. And uh, finally, um, Samuel would be the one that would deliver Israel from the Philistines after 40 years in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So we just got a small snapshot of these 40 years here in the lifetime of Samson. And of course, Samson would be born during these 40 years. He would judge Israel and he would also die. Now, we don't know really what age Samson began to judge Israel, yet it is suspected that it would have been some time before he was 20 years old. Judges 14 shows us that Samson was still very much under the care of his parents at that point, when he, at the point when he came under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit and began to operate as a judge. So I'm guessing he was maybe 16, 17 when um, he began his uh, judgeship. I can't be absolutely certain, but it's useful to have this picture in your mind because we tend to think of Samson as a strapping young man when actually he was probably still a teenager when he began in his role. 
But uh, unlike former judges, he did not fully deliver Israel from the Philistine yoke. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Philistines, really, even though Samuel would subdue them in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Philistines would not be fully overcome until the reign of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So there'd be a constant thorn in the side of Israel from this point forward. And uh, the last we know of the Philistines is around about the 6th century BC, where they appeared to be completely wiped out when King Nebuchadnezzar came to invade Israel. And uh, he took, obviously, um, Daniel and other people into captivity. But that was the last point that the Philistines are recorded in history. So I, one, everybody assumes that Nebuchadnezzar was the one finally dispersing and, and destroying them for good. So there we go. A bit of a history of the Philistines, trying to give you some sort of perspective or context for these 40 years and also projecting us into the future to understand where we're heading. Now we can go on to verse two. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. So here we are introduced to two people, the parents of Samson. Manoah, we are told, is from Zorah and is from the tribe of Dan. His wife, we are told, is barren and has no children. Manoah, from the tribe of Dan. Dan is one of the weakest of the tribes. They occupied a small area uh, a little bit north of, um, of Judah uh, by the coast. And... Um, uh, they weren't able to really secure much territory. They didn't do well in fighting and repelling the Canaanites. And uh, later on in chapter 17, we're going to read about how they migrate north beyond the Galilee to an area up there. However, at present, the Danites are living in a place called Zorah and Eshtaol, which is a mountainous region. So what's happened is the Philistines have come in. They forced the Danites out of their territory into the mountains regions. So the Danites are living in a very poor state at this moment in time. And there is Manoah living in Zora. Now, uh, when it comes to Manoah's wife, we're not we're not given her name, although Jewish tradition says it's Tzelal Funit, apparently. Uh, but I'm struggling to pronounce that. So we're just going to call her Manoah's wife, as does the Bible. And uh, she is not she she is introduced not by her name, but by way of her condition. Um, uh, and as and really the reason that she's introduced by way of a condition is because this is the issue that will be overcome through this account. Now, despite the absence of her name, she really is the main character of chapter 13. She is the one whom the angel of the Lord visits and speaks to. And uh, she is the one through whom God is going to bring forth the next judge. And it just goes to show you that it's not your it's not your name or your fame among men that is important. It's your relationship to and your position before God that is important. It was a great stigma in ancient Israel to be barren and without children. And I'm sure it must have been a tremendous struggle for Manoah's wife. We're told in Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And to be barren was to be cursed by God, to be without support in your old age, and to be thrown into poverty 
upon your widowhood. So not having children was not a good thing. Yet the Lord will come and remove this woman's shame, just as the Lord has come to remove our shame and our curse. Hallelujah. Verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is the third occasion that the angel of the Lord has appeared in the book of Judges. He first appeared in Judges 2 to the Israelites, and then he appeared in Judges 6 to Gideon. And we know from those post past appearances uh, uh, and from what develops in this chap chapter that this is not just an angelic being, but it is a theophany. It is an appearance of God, specifically the second person of the Godhead, the Son, before his incarnation. And the message of the angel of the Lord is one that will bring comfort and hope to Manoah's wife. She will conceive and bear a son. And how these words must have been such a blessing to hear. Now, the language of this appearance and the announcement of a child being born is kind of reminiscent of past and future accounts where a birth occurs by supernatural means. It has echoes of the Lord appearing to Abraham, announcing that Sarah will have a son. And it also has a sense of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, announcing she will have a son. But throughout the Lord's dealing with Israel and the bloodline of the Messiah, the Lord repeatedly moves miraculously on the wombs of many women, indicating that both Israel and the Messiah could have only come into being via supernatural providence. Both Israel and the Messiah come into being as a result of supernatural providence. Now, Samson is not the best picture of Jesus. He, in fact, in many ways, Samson is more a type or a picture of Israel than he is a type of Jesus. You see, both Israel and Samson had supernatural elements in their births. Both Samson and Israel are called to high levels of separation from birth. Both Samson and Israel had an immature faith. Both Samson and Israel were drawn to foreign women. Samson to Philistines, Israel to foreign gods. Both Samson and Israel experienced oppression and bondage of the enemy. Both Samson and Israel were blinded. Samson physically, Israel spiritually. Both Samson and Israel were abandoned by God. And both Samson and Israel cried out to the Lord from their oppression and both Samson and Israel had their relationship with God renewed. So Samson is, is like a microcosm of Israel in a way. Now going on, let's see what the angel of the Lord uh, says. Verses four and five. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now all expectant mothers experience the restrictions of diet and activity to support and aid their child during the term of their pregnancy. No alcohol, no soft cheese, no raw eggs, no bungee jumping. Um, but uh, here the restrictions imposed by the angel of the Lord upon Manoah's wife are not so much for the safety of the baby but for the sanctity of the baby. 
Now you see, uh, Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, that word Nazarite, note the spelling, is N-A-Z-I-R-I-T-E, not N-A-Z-A-R-I-T. N-A-Z-A-R-I-T is someone from Nazareth, uh, but Nazirite uh, is a term that means consecrated or devoted. Samson was to be consecrated or devoted from the womb. And there is a Nazarite vow uh, that is discussed in Numbers 6 verses 1 to 21. And what that was was an extended period of consecration and devotion to the Lord. It could last an indeterminate amount of time, three months, a period of years, or in the case of Samson, and I think John the Baptist too, it lasted a lifetime. And there were three principal observations that were to be made during the, uh, during the term of the Nazarite vow. One, there should be no consummation of alcohol. Two, there should be no cutting of hair. And three, there should be no touching of a dead body. So, so as not to be made unclean. Then at the conclusion of the period of the vow, the hair could be cut off and there was a long list of sacrifices that were to be made to the Lord at the tabernacle or the temple, depending when it is. Interestingly, Paul took the Nazarite vow in Acts 18 verse 18, which I find a little bit confusing because Paul taught extensively about not being under the law, but being under grace. Uh, why then did he choose to observe a practice from the Mosaic law, which is a bit curious. So I'll leave you guys to ponder that one. Uh, but anyway, Manoah's wife uh, follows the observations of the Nazarite vow as an introduction to it for her son who will be growing inside of her. And of course, then the vow would be picked up by Samson upon his birth and... Uh, uh, he should go on and follow these observations throughout his life. Now, the Nazarite vow will be key to Samson's supernatural strength and uh, Samson's ability to overcome the Philistines. And it should be noted that in, in Samson's short life, he will break all three of these Nazarite vows, which really is an indication of his spiritual immaturity and his poor devotion of God. God had sanctified him, set him apart, right from the womb to be a special person and yet we see throughout Samson's life a disregard for those things that God had imposed upon him and uh, I, I, I was talking to Ian about this earlier this week I was talking to my wife about this I'm, I'm not a fan of Samson he, he's a bit of a bounder to be quite honest with you um, yeah his, his life's pretty much a train wreck when it comes to life and serving God and, you know, you, you read his life, he's, he's cocky, he's arrogant, he toys with people, he's driven by lust, he's got a low regard for his parents and for the Lord. And in, 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 in life, he's the sort of guy that irritates me wildly. And I've known people like Samson in my life. The women always seem to like him. The guys want to be around him. And he's the sort of guy that I want nothing to do with. Uh, but, you know, the biggest irritation about Samson is this. That God chooses him and God uses him. And that kind of really gets my goat, if I'm honest with you. Uh, so in Samson, we see a man who is used sovereignly and graciously by the Lord, not because he is specially gifted or able, but despite his imperfections and weaknesses.
And really, is that not the case for all of us, that God uses us despite our imperfections and weaknesses? You know, if God was looking for a suitable candidate to anoint and use uh, in, in just in the flesh, he's never going to find anybody. He always has to dig deep in the rubbish bin to find anybody to be able to use. But then when he saves us, he cleanses us, he sanctifies us and he makes us into the people he wants us to be. The danger with Samson is that you look at his life, you look at his compromises, his lusts and his sin, and you think, well, if it's OK for Samson, then it's OK for me. Not so. Don't be deceived into thinking that way. The lesson of Samson's life is one of wasted potential. There is so much that he could have achieved for the Lord, but he fell woefully short of all that he could have done because of his character faults. And this is alluded to in this verse where it says there, go back to verse five. And toward the end, it says uh, he should be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. I believe Sam, um, Samson could have fully delivered Israel out of the hand of the Philistines, the way that Jephthah did with the Ammonites, the way that Gideon did with the Midianites. But because he, he did not serve the Lord wholeheartedly because he did not honour the Nazarite vow. Because he was a bounder, he fell short of all, the, all that he could have accomplished for the Lord. If it weren't for his arrogance and his sinful habits causing him to fall short, Sam, Samson could have accomplished so much. But as I said, he is an example, a lesson of wasted potential. And while God can use any man or woman, what God is truly looking for is obedience and faithfulness. When the Lord looks at you, what he is looking for is obedience and faithfulness. Judge yourself by the standards of obedience and faithfulness, not by the standard of Samson. Samson's almost a lesson about how not to serve the Lord, to be quite honest with you. But we'll go into that in more detail when we get to chapter 14, 15 and 16 later on. Let's try to get through the rest of chapter 13, verses six and seven. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God has come to me. And his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from. And he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So after uh, her encounter with the angel of the Lord, Manoah's wife does what every other woman in that situation would do. She goes tell her husband. And I don't know, I, I like to think she, she's, she quietly slips it into conversation over dinner. You know, nice day at the office, dear. Oh, yes, thank you. And what did you do today, dear? Oh, not much. I cleaned the house, went shopping. Oh, and had a chat with the angel of the Lord. And just watch for his reaction. Yeah. I doubt it did happen this way. Yet she conveys all that was said and uh, uh, all that was required of her concerning her son. So Manoah, what's his reaction? Verse eight. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. No, Manoah's response was not incredulity toward his wife. He clearly trusted and believed his wife. And what's more, he had faith and confidence in a God who is intimately engaged 
with the affairs of men. You know, there are many Christians today who are doubtful of the supernatural. The thought that God can speak directly today to an individual is dismissed as nonsense. Yet we have the same God who wants to reveal himself and be known today as he revealed himself and made himself known to Manoah's wife back here in Judges 13. God will reveal himself to all who are open and receptive to him. And Manoah's response was to come to the Lord in prayer. The supernatural visitation by God, the devout response by Manoah, indicates that this is a godly couple. And in an age where the majority are walking in darkness, here we have a godly couple walking in the light. Verses 9 to 11. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he spoke to him. Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. So here we see that the Lord is a God who hears prayer and answers prayer. He does as Manoah requests and comes back again. And so Manoah can have satisfaction, uh, not that he's lot well, so he can have satisfaction uh, about his his um, not so much that he doubts his wife's words, but that he can gain clarity about how to best execute the wishes of heaven. See, Manoah's heart was one of obedience. He wanted to serve the Lord faithfully in the commission of their son. And it just occurs to me when we pray, is it out of devotion and desire to be obedient? Or is that out of want and selfish gain? Manoah's prayer was one out of devotion and desire to be obedient. So, verse 12, Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? Once the identity of the angel of God has been confirmed, Manoah speaks first a word of submission. He says, Now let your words come to pass. And then he asks two questions. What will be the boy's rule of life and what will be the boy's work? In other words, how shall we act toward him and how shall we raise him? And this is the angel's response in verses 13 and 14. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, all that I commanded her. Let her observe. So, the angel of the Lord repeats the instruction he had given to Manoah's wife, uh, to Manoah, and he doesn't complicate things with detailed guidelines for raising Samson. Um, he doesn't say what name to give the child. He simply gives the instructions to observe the Nazarite vow. At this point, I'm wondering whether the angel of the Lord is checking his watch, thinking, OK, so I've given this message twice. Can I go now? But uh, Manoah is not done. He's, uh, his Middle Eastern hospitality kicks in. And uh, we read in 15 and 16, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. 
Manoa's request is not for a short delay. It will take time to slay, skin and prepare a goat. It's like asking someone to stay for a roast dinner when nothing has been prepared. And the angel of the Lord is gracious. He agrees to the delay, but declines the offer of food. Instead, uh, he directs that the goat should be offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. And we are then given a parenthesis that highlights Manoah's ignorance of the identity of the angel of the Lord. Yet, I'm guessing there is something in the words of the angel that seems to arouse Manoah's curiosity. And because it's borne out in Manoah's next question, verses 17 and 18. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name that you that when your words come to pass, we may honour you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. The reason for Manoah's inquiry is he would like to honour this man before him uh, when his words come true. Kind of suggests that Manoah thinks this person is probably a prophet, yet the response to his question disabuses him of that notion. The angel of the Lord says his name is wonderful. Now that word wonderful means incomprehensible, extraordinary, beyond one's ability to understand and the the word that's translated wonderful is only ever used one other place in scripture and that's in psalm 139 which reads "O lord you have searched me and known me you know my sitting down and my rising up you understand my thought afar off you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways for there is not a word on my tongue but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's a word that speaks of how transcendent and otherwise the Lord is in comparison to us. And as if to illustrate this fact, the following event occurs. Verses 19 to 21. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock of the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended into the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now, it's not unheard of in scripture for fire to descend from heaven to consume a sacrifice. But it's something quite different uh, to hear when that an angel ascends in the fire from the sacrifice. And the one who is called wonderful does something that is wondrous. Manoah and his wife's response is to humble themselves before the Lord. They fall upon their feet, uh, faces as it were. And uh, it's at this point they both realise with whom they've been speaking. This is no prophet or mere angel. This is God himself. And once reality dawns, fear settles in. And uh, verse 22, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. His knee jerk reaction to all that has occurred is probably drawn from Exodus uh, and Moses encounter with the Lord, where it says in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And here Manoah's quaking, thinking he's, he's destined for death because he's seen the Lord, not knowing that the second person of the Godhead is the visible image of the invisible God. 
So while Manoa descends into irrational fear, his wife has the voice of reason. Verse 23. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Her words are like three short slaps in the face. Wake up, fella, and get with the program. If killing us was his intention, then why did he accept the sacrifice, promise us a son and advise us how to raise him? Help mate. That's a woman's role, according to Genesis 2, verse 18. And why does man need a helper? Because sometimes he's helpless, or like Manoah, hopeless, it would seem. Manoah's wife certainly had a greater spiritual insight in this situation. And often it can be the case that a woman can be more spiritually sensitive and in tune than a guy. The body of Christ needs both male and female spirituality to be fully equipped. So the final two verses of the chapter deal with the fulfilment of the message delivered by the angel of the Lord and the commissioning of Samson for service. Let's read verses 24 and 25. So the, so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson and the child grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanei Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So Manoah's wife bore a child and they called him Samson. Samson means like the sun, so they called him Sunny. And uh, he grew physically and he grew spiritually. And this should be the goal for all of our children in the fellowship, to see them grow physically into healthy adults and to see them grow spiritually into mature believers. And when physical growth is stunted, of course, we know something is wrong and it needs to be questioned and investigated. And likewise, when spiritual growth is stunted, we, we know something is wrong and it needs to be questioned and investigated. We need to be courageous enough to question and challenge our children so that their growth is not stunted, but they reach a place of spiritual maturity. Samson had godly parents. They were directed by God himself. They brought up their son in the fear of the Lord. He was chosen. He was called. He was anointed. This is the best of beginnings. But to some degree, I almost feel as if this is about as good as it gets. Next time, we'll see how Samson gets on as he encounters the Philistines for the first time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to be obedient and faithful followers of Jesus. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be those who bring up our children in the life of the fellowship, in the fear and the reverence of the Lord. Help us to encourage one another to maintain a close walk with you. And please bless your word to us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>